Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Joanna Bucknell and you're listening to episode 7 of Tate, that's T-A-I-T, which is short for Talking About Immersive Theatre. Now, this podcast series pretty much delivers what its title suggests. I go out and about to meet and chat to all kinds of people involved in immersive performance, actors, directors, producers, venues and practitioners to give you access and insight into the immersive work that they do. Now, before I let you at it this month, just a little apology. There is a little bit of background noise at various points throughout the discussion this month. Now, unfortunately, this is just one of the occupational hazards of me bringing you discussions from the places and spaces where the immersive practitioners make their work. This month, we were recording in Battersea Arts uh, Scratch Bar, and they're currently fixing their roof so there's a little bit of background noise at various points so I do apologize for that but I do hope that it's not too disruptive okay so I'm now going to let you get at it so I'm here at Battersea Arts Centre with Anthony to talk about the immersive performance work that he does with Death's Head Theatricals in New York, uh, which is in the United States. <laughs> Just thought I'd better say that because there are people listening from all over the world. So, um, Anthony, can you give the listeners a bit of an insight into who you are as an artist and what your background is? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This is, You're this very is welcome. so lovely. <laughs> um, yeah, so I am one of the co-founders of Death's Head. We are a dark, immersive theater company based in New York City. Um, we specialize in immersive theater that gives audience a glimpse into the darker sides of reality and confronting issues and I think a lot of our work is very history based. Mm-hmm. Um, when we originally founded the company um, we had a historian an immersive theater practitioner, a magician, and a um, theater scholar as our four like principal core members. Okay. So our work kind of spanned out of our love for history and magic and all these things. Um, myself personally, uh, I'm traditionally from a musical theater background, which normally immersive and musical theater very rarely run together, but. Um, I love environments and big worlds and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So um, We are an anonymous theater company. That's why you're only hearing my first name. Um, <laughs> all of our creative teams are secret because we bring in a lot of people on a case-by-case basis uh-huh. uh, who work at a lot of the other big immersive shows or uh, ha- are designers who have shows on Broadway and things like that. It gives them a chance to try new techniques and try um, more risky things without the idea of their reputations being hurt. Okay. Um, If something doesn't work as well as they anticipated. Yeah. Um, Also, it's a great marketing tool for us because we do dark immersive theater. I was just going to ask you about marketing because often, especially um, with productions, names help to draw audience. So you would expect that to potentially be a barrier, but have you found that to actually be a strength? It has. It's been a huge strength. We don't have a website. We don't have a Facebook page. (laughs) We have an Instagram and a Twitter and we use non-conventional marketing uh, press releases and uh, 
blog posts on other people's blogs okay. to get the word out about the show, which find which we find really works for us uh, because a lot of our events are secretive and dark, and you know we're building a brand as as that when you hear Death's Head, you know what you're going to go see, mm-hmm. but. We find that we've tapped into a very niche market, yeah. uh, even more niche than your immersive theater market um, in the States, which is very rabid for uh, work. Uh, but we've tapped into an even smaller market that really feeds our shows and uh-huh. keeps coming and coming and coming and seeing everything that we do, which we So do people then, to be able to kind of access the work, have to kind of engage on social media in order exactly. to know what's going on. Um, our show that we just did, Curiosities, we did an immersive rush policy on the show. So on the day of the performances, we would tweet and Instagram a picture uh, and the location of the immersive rush it changed every day mm-hmm. and the password. And we would send mm-hmm. uh, one of our cast members to the spots mm-hmm. three hours before the show wow. in character. Uh-huh. Um and nothing super distinguishing about them. I mean, they might have slightly period. They would be wearing their costume. So for curiosities, it was slightly period dress, but nothing kind of super out of place. Um, and the reactions of audience members who, who did the rush board were very interesting. Um, I was kind of hovering around the first night to just make sure things went smoothly and seeing how audience members, and we did it in Schubert Alley, which is right where all the Broadway shows are. It's this alley that runs between the theaters, and uh, one of our actors was standing there, and we had this woman been staring at him for about five minutes uh, from across the alley, and then comes over and very quietly says, excuse me, do you know anything about curiosities? Um, And he said something along the lines of, what's the password? And do you have money? Um, and collected cash and gave her an index card with the secret wow. location of the show. Uh-huh. Um, because with Curiosities, uh, you only got the location of the show once you bought your ticket. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we would hand them an index card with the location. Mm-hmm. They would take down their name for the door. And they would pay for their ticket. And they would go on their merry way. Do you think that kind of exclusivity then is, is kind of one of the draws for people to the work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, also because we want each audience member to have a very special experience happen to them, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, and obviously, it's financially impossible to have one actor per audience member on shows of this scale. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, Curiosities, we limited to 50 audience members per show, and our principal cast was 12. So okay. it was it was less than five to one. It was like it was four to one roughly, which is a huge, which is great. Yeah, it's um, a massive investment in that. And because a lot of our our one on ones happen several times a night, we guaranteed that every audience member would get one at one point, mm-hmm. either a solo one on one or one of our small group one on ones. We had a, a seance that happened in the space that was four audience members of one performer. I read about that. I read about that, and um. Actually, that's for, for me, I'm always so jealous, um, like when I've been at Punch Drunk's work or anyone else's, where they are very limited compared to the number of audience there are. When I see someone led away into a caravan or led away into a shop, I'm always like, me, I wish that was me. And I don't always get that. But it sounds like if I 
was to come to one of your pieces of work, I would have a much greater chance of getting that kind of one-on-one -on -one interaction. And we, we want that because that taps our audience into what we're creating in the world, and we get to share a personal story with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what audience members are looking for. Yeah. If you're breaking down the proscenium, if you're getting rid of the seats, yeah. then obviously they don't just want to sit back and watch a story unfold. No. They want to be involved in something so intimate. They want an intimate experience. Well, I ask that a lot because sometimes I go to shows and I kind of and I find myself asking, why did you make me get out of my seat? I don't feel like I've had a good enough reason. I might as well sit and watch. That doesn't always happen, but sometimes when that does happen, and I think for me as well, the highest currency in this kind of work is those moments of intimacy. And I feel like that's that's what I'm really after, and they're the moments that I'm I'm desperate for. And I always wonder, is that just me? Because I'm a performer anyway, so I like to play in that way. But I think that people really do crave that kind of intimacy, and I wonder why as well. In in, in an age where we're so disconnected through so many different ways, I think, and people I think that. that's it. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know we spend our whole day buried in our cell phone or in our computer or. You know, whatever it is, and we have to, like, you know, to function in today's society, you yeah. have to be wired in that to be able to put your phone away and really connect to a human being, mm. a stranger, yeah. even. Yeah. And by the end of that one-on-one -on -one experience, they're no longer a stranger to yeah. you. Is really beautiful and really powerful, yeah. and we're all about sharing intimate, personal stories with our with our audience, and that's. I think that's why we're considered dark immersive theater is because when you get to that personal, personal level, the stories that you share with your closest friends don't tend to be what good things happened to you. No, today. no, of course not. It's the struggle. Yeah. And we recognize the struggle that everybody goes through on a, on a daily basis, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. And our shows tap into those kinds of things. Um, well, it creates a kind of a risk, doesn't it? But it's not a risk where you're genuinely in danger, but it, there is always a risk of engaging in an intimate situation with, with a stranger. But they tend, for me, to be the most rewarding moments of, of allowing yourself to give yourself over to that moment and to be in that moment. And that's what I really enjoy as well. It's And it's all about being connected as I... My, my parents came into, into town to visit me about a month ago, uh, and they had never seen any immersive theater, so I decided to take them to sleep no more uh, in New York, uh -huh. and you know, not knowing whether they would enjoy it or not enjoy it, I just kind of wanted to be like, this is what I do, this is what I create, and this is the most mass market palatable version of what I can take them to. Yeah. Um, because it's still edgy, it's still a great production. Yeah. Um, but I think they would have been far more hesitant to go to something in a warehouse in Brooklyn um, than, you know, this. Well, Sleep No More also um, is accessible in a way because of the text and because we know the story. Yes, that's true. That's and I think true. all the shows that are based in stories that we know and stories that are familiar have slightly less of that risk involved because we have that certain expectations that come with those texts, even if they're challenged or oh, yeah. um, they're well, what uh, problematized. I, what I admire about that show completely is 
their ability to turn off audience members' brains for them and let them be engaged. Um, I definitely once went to the show for the sole purpose of watching how they navigated a certain technical thing. Yeah. I got to the end of the show and realized that I totally forgot to look for it because I was so involved <laughs> in like what was going on that I was like, oh no, I missed three times because the show loops. I was like, three yeah, times yeah. I missed what I actually paid to come see was this show about, for. Yeah. Um, but I, I took my parents to the show and I ran off to do yeah. my own thing as, as I tell everyone they should do. Yeah. And I got a one-on-one that I, I hadn't seen before. And where something very personal and intimate is shared with an audience member. And it involves, at the end, this actor collapsing into your arms and into tears and just holding you. Oh my God. And I found myself crying uncontrollably in this moment. And that just reinforced to me the importance of this kind of work. Yeah. Um, because where else do you get that? You really, really don't. No, you really don't. And contemporary life just isn't... It's kind of set up for exactly the opposite of those kind of encounters, I think. So I think this gives that sort of safe space to be able to do that and that's one of the things that I just I love about it and I think is really beautiful that sort of leads me into because I was going to ask you about what makes your work distinct but we've already really talked about that so um, some of the people are listening will be based in the UK or in Australia or other places so I wanted if you could talk a little bit about the immersive scene in New York and where your work kind of fits within that sure um, so the New York immersive scene is incredibly different because there's not um grants and arts funding for that kind of thing, that even yeah. Sleep No More, which is a Punch Drunk show, is not run in the States by Punch Drunk. It's run by a production company called Immersive, yeah. which is run by a gentleman called Randy Weiner. Uh, they also produce a show called Queen of the Night, and they've been involved with a bunch of other things. Um, and they run the day-to-day -day operations. And uh, when you do Immersive in, in New York City, it has to be commercially have to at least recoup, um, which is a struggle because there's not also the access to spaces that you have here. We were having this conversation earlier. I was wandering around today, and I was like, oh, look at all these beautiful, like, disused buildings I know, that I, I, know. I, just, I want it. I want to use it. And a lot of the venues that we end up using are something else during the day, yeah. and we have to transform the space sometimes on a nightly basis, which is an additional struggle, <laughs> or it's, you know, the space is owned and used by somebody else, and it's not entirely ours for our purposes, which is really hard. And there's this model that's emerged now where you add a restaurant and a bar space and whatever to your immersive show, so that's where the main cash flow comes in, yeah. uh, not in ticket sales itself. Yeah. Also, immersive theater in the States tends to be a lot more expensive than it is here. Yeah, I um, noticed that when I was there. Queen of the Night, their cheapest ticket was like $140. Now, it did, did include a three-course meal with it, yeah. but, you know, it's it, expensive. Yeah. Expensive. Um, but there are very few companies doing immersive theater in, in New York you get lots of like site specific things and there are lots of like little groups that do site specific stuff there's a great group that, uh, that uh, called Shakespeare in the parking lot 
um, that uses a, a parking lot in uh, in the East Village uh-huh. and mounts site-specific Shakespeare things there. Okay. Um, and there's lots of site-specific things, but like really, the immersive pocket is is small. Yeah. Um, and the, but the productions tend to be big. They. Um, but even then, she fell. Fifteen audience members per night. But they've been running for three years, yeah. and they have shows every night. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, uh, Grand Paradise. These are both Third Rail project shows. Third Rail produces some beautiful things. Yeah. Uh, Grand Paradise just got extended again, which makes me really happy because it's a very different piece. It's nice to see something that's different instead yeah. of it being dimly lit and being a thriller and emotionally intense. It's beautiful and nostalgic. It's mm-hmm. um, So that's really nice to see something that's very different. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that it's going to be extended and extended until I it, can get out there. You, know you know what? I hope so. Um, that work deserves to go on forever and ever and ever. And I'm really uh, thrilled that Third Rail is having such success with their shows. Absolutely. And now they're expanding to other cities. I know, uh, which I know. is great. Uh, I'm hoping they might they might come to I, London. Would be amazing. Hey, Third Rail, you should come, come to, to London. You should come to London. <laughs> I have, uh, I have um, I've emailed with, uh, with Tom Pearson. Yeah, yeah. And I know that he's really keen on potentially coming over to the UK to do something. So I'm like, I really hope that happens. Oh, I hope I hope so too. I I wish them all the success because yeah. they create some really beautiful things and. Um, yeah, so the, the New York immersive scene, there's like a core pocket of folks who, who do it, and they do a lot of the same projects. Yeah. I mean, Dalton Dale, who runs Fourth Dimension, um, is doing a huge immersive piece that a couple of us from Death's Head are working on with him outside of, of Death's Head. Uh, he's producing uh, New York's largest immersive haunted house. Awesome. And it's... It's... It's like an immersive theater haunted house. It's it's uh-huh. free roaming. It's like twenty five thousand square feet. Wow. It's huge in this basement of this historic building. It used yeah. to be a stable range. Well, often with haunted houses, actually, you're pushed through them very quickly. Yeah. So nope. I'm assuming you'll get a lot more kind nope. of time. Nope. Yeah, you get a lot more time, <laughs> and it's beautiful and elegant. And um, there's another immersive show in uh, Orlando called Vault of Souls, yeah. which. Uh, is is an elegant evening of fear, and I think those kind of things are really cool. Yeah, me because too. they're scary and intense, but also beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not um, dollar store costumes and masks and people jumping yeah. out of hallways. It's scarier on a much deeper level, which is something that we also try and tap into. Is yeah. what are your Fears outside of blood and guts and chainsaws, yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah. clowns with chainsaws. Yeah, uh, yeah. That stuff gets very boring very quickly and very unfrightening. I mean, I loved horror when I was a teenager, massive horror fan. But I think horror, especially in film, has forgotten what's actually chilling, and often it's not seeing or the suggestion and the way that things move around things and yeah. the atmosphere. And of course, the oh, theater is absolutely it's all about atmosphere. atmosphere. Um, <laughs> Yeah, if if you happen to be in New York during the hall uh, during the Halloween season, for sure check out the Uninvited. It's uh, it's scary and beautiful and all kinds of things. Dalton Dale is uh, 
I, I call him an evil genius. He's <laughs> like a mad scientist of horror things. He created this uh, immersive zombie experience uh-huh. that was also really terrifying. Well, zombies are terrifying anyway, and the, the most terrifying thing I've been to has been uh, involved zombies. So, and uh, my partner absolutely loved it, but um, I was just terrified the whole time. I was just like, I literally feel sick. And you know it's safe, but you don't. You forget, and that's the best, isn't it? Is when you forget that you're safe. That it's not real. That it's not real. <laughs> that's and that's, <laughs> and that's the beautiful. That's the beautiful thing about it is getting and creating these environments. Um, yeah. Creating the audience's uh, experience is what's really important. For us yeah. uh, above everything else it's about creating a world and immersion and audience experience um i think that trump's narrative for me yeah me too um, absolutely and you know i have lots of philosophical debates with immersive practitioners about this and there are definitely people who are like story is the most important absolutely um, where you know, in curiosities we did not have a central plot line because in, in talking about what works and doesn't work in immersive theater, we all were like, all the immersive theater pieces that we go to that have a main plot line, nobody gets it. Yeah, Like, yeah. nobody... Well, it's too easy to miss things as well, isn't it? So if, if you're reliant and upon... And you should. You driving, should Exactly. Things. You're going to miss things, which means if, if you've got to be able to follow the drive of the plot, that's going to be a huge problem. <laughs> and, and not that there aren't stories, but all of our... We had... 12 principal cast members and all of their stories were equally as important yeah um and the more of those stories you got and understood mm. the more of a complete picture you got of this world okay um so that you know you are encouraged to learn about these characters yeah and what's happening because you the more you find out the more you're intrigued the more you're tied yeah. into this world um, and you can feel like an active participant versus just a viewer, yeah, which is, yeah. is nice. And I think that's important. And I think um, the things that I've enjoyed the most, and not even thinking with an academic head at all, because everything is operating different dramaturgies, but in, as someone who loves immersive theatre and performance, the moments that I enjoy the most are when I feel that I have some agency and intimacy. And for me, they're the things that I seek out the most when I go to immersive shows is agency and intimacy. And if it's got one or, one or both of those things, then I tend to have a, a really good time. And that's, that's <laughs> important for us because it's very easy to try and recoup your money by packing as many people into the show as humanly possible. Absolutely. Uh, and there's definitely like that thread of thought. And that's, I mean, it's, it's important because... You know, you don't want to lose money. Most of the time, you're creating work out of pocket. And yeah, exactly. You can't thing. make work if you don't have any funds if you don't, to do If you it. don't have money to do it. <laughs> um, but, like, Curiosities, we limited to 50 audience members per, per show. And with tw- a 12-person principal cast, you know, that came out to being roughly four people, uh, four audience members per actor. Yeah, which, which uh, is And because things number. looped. Almost everybody, well, we, we guaranteed that everyone got an experience of some kind, whether that was a, a small group scene or a one-on-one or whatever. Yeah. Um, everybody got some kind of intimate personal experience which is fab. Um, in this world that we had created, yeah. which is so important to us. Because we were talking about being an audience member, going to a immersive theater, what do you like? You like one-on-one. So you yeah. like these personal experiences. Absolutely. What don't you like? Plot lines that you can't follow. Yeah. So how do we do more of one and less, and less of, of the, the other? other? And um, jostling through 
hundreds and hundreds of people to try it's, to get a look of something it's is no like fun. no it's no fun. I'm like that's fine at a music festival right it's not fine at the theater yeah yeah no immersive <laughs> theater is not Bonnaroo no exactly um, uh, but there is this pressure and actually one of the things um I'm working with a colleague at Surrey at the moment to put together an immersive performance network, kind of an academic network. And some of the concerns that have been raised are actually that it's becoming hugely elitist because of the ticket prices. I know they're expensive here in London, also they're, and they're more expensive over in the States as well. But then there is this problem, isn't it? You know, these things cost huge, vast sums of money to put together and to put together well. But then what we're doing is we're creating this kind of elitist audience who can afford to kind of go to these things right. which is as a practitioner I really think this is a really this is a, this is a huge challenge how do we potentially make this work accessible without it becoming elitist but also without losing the quality of generating the, the, that quality of work and, and it's important um, I find particularly performers you get what pay for yeah you do and i i mean i'm primarily a performer i come from a performance background i always want to pay actors for their work. yeah uh, that's hugely important to me and and there have been times when we've been developing work when i'm like guys i'm so sorry this is what we can yeah. afford to pay you if you can't take this i will call you when we have more money for the next the norm iteration. here is people working for nothing and there's a big movement at the moment to change that because it's unacceptable that artists are just in the uk just not being paid and it's hard at all. and it's hard when your production costs are so high yeah that's why we do almost almost exclusively site-specific immersive work which has its own challenges yeah of course um, most of these places we don't have to set dress because they're already what they already are. What they are yeah. um, you know, we've done two shows at the Morristown Mansion on 163rd Street in New mm. York. It's the oldest mansion on the Eastern Seaboard. It was Washington's headquarters during the Revolutionary wow. War. Uh, Aaron Burr married Eliza Jamel. It was his house for a while. Um, wow! It's stunning. So but it also, gives you that. Yeah, it gives you that. And it worked yeah. for both of the shows really well. That both of the shows that we did there. Um, but there were the challenges of, well, there's a 300-year-old floor-to-ceiling portrait that we have to make sure audiences don't, don't lean against. Um, you know, we use Eliza Jamel's bedroom, which still has her bed in it. Wow. And we, you know, had to, how do you, without, like, putting big ropes around things, get audience members to not sit on the bed or lean on the bed? And or, without breaking that fictive space that you work right. so hard to construct as well and having to tell people don't do this or and don't you know, do that. And how do you do that when it's a museum during the day mm -hmm. you cannot bring in and hang practical uh, theatrical instrumentation. No, no. How can you use the lights that are already there and uh, gel things and put new bulbs in things um, I mean for our show Alving Estate there that we did with uh, Journey Lab on a nightly basis I had to run around and put new light bulbs in because then we had to reset yeah, for them to yeah, be a museum course. during yeah, the yeah. day. And obviously you can't have blue washes yeah. as the only lighting on the second floor no. uh, during the day <laughs> when you know you have school groups and all exactly. kinds of things. Um, so that's a that's a, a challenge. Yeah. Um, but I find those spaces so much more fun than having to spend four months building in a warehouse. Yeah. Uh, because you can create an environment but we prefer to amplify the environment that's already there. I would yeah. rather add pieces 
and, and whatnot, construct from and, nothing, and then yeah. versus construct from nothing. Yeah, which gives you freedom and constraints. Well, that's kind of interesting because although um, a drowned man for Punch Drunk was a huge constructed space, actually the space we're sat in right now was where uh, Mask of the Red Death happened, and actually they their earlier work really did work about amplifying and working within, I mean, this beautiful building that we're in, Battersea Arts. And although they added lots of stuff to it, actually the site itself brought a lot to that. And it, there's, I love the fact that there's the remnants, many, many, I was, what, 10 years on, maybe, maybe more, is all still here. And I think that's really interesting. And I think necessity is what has moved it, their work into big spaces that they're having to construct for themselves. Also, if you're doing something on scale, there, I know they're, they're producing on an enormous scale. Huge. The drama was huge. It was huge. There cars I loved, in there. I the loved. <laughs> I thought it was stunning and beautiful. And I loved. It's just loved, loved, loved it. But like away. you know, when you get to that size and scale for the specificity yeah. of what they're doing, yeah. they, you know. You have to. You just can't. You have to. Exactly. And you just can't take a place like this for a year with nothing else going on. Exactly. In it. And so exactly. I think that's. And what even more so in it. New York City, that yeah. spaces just don't don't exist unless because you have to try and keep things in Manhattan or as close to Manhattan as possible. Will people not travel out then to things? It's hard. It's hard to get okay. people to travel, especially if you're like it's in Queens, it's in Brooklyn, it's you know people are like ooh Brooklyn that's so far and it's not it's a fifteen minute Brooklyn. it's a Brooklyn fifteen minute train ride like I it's went. so easy um, <laughs> but we were worried about getting people to one sixty third uh, really? to the mansion yeah um, there was there was that concern as people people travel up that far and uh, obviously they did because we. Sold out. The audience are fairly hardcore. I mean, I have trekked to some crazy places to experience immersive performances, but I'm a, di- I'm a bit of a diehard. But maybe that is who is. I mean, and that's important. I mean, when, you, when you're doing shows like you can do a Then She Fell on Grand Paradise because I think Grand Paradise is 50 people. Uh, then She Fell is 15. Yeah. Um, they will travel. The diehards will, will definitely go. And when you have yeah. audience members that small, you can sustain that's, that. You know, yeah. But, like, you know, For Real is a huge name now, whereas we're still coming into our our own. We definitely have this core pocket of fans that that come out every time um, and are really wonderful. Well, you never know either what's going to be the turning point and what's... what. I'm I'm a third rail, I'm assuming really we're not expecting then she fell... To be as huge as it was. To explode like it did in that way, to be extended and extended and extended. And um, you never know when something might do that or why right <laughs> it does that it's the right piece in the right space at the right time yeah. uh, can make or break you um, also because there's so few immersive theater that a couple of bad reviews yeah. will just kill you so to, a critic's quite important then in very the scene. Um, yeah it's it's a very interesting thing that they, they have a lot of power in some places and not a lot of power in another um i've done a lot of lame myths for example yeah. in, in my musical and theater musical is it they make a big difference um, critics don't they but when it first opened in london critics hated it i know the reviews I know. Were, and look 30 years on they're still here yeah um and the show was as good as ever and it was because the audiences last on to those things but yeah. you know are you going to more likely trust a review for a small intimate thing in a secret location yeah. that you've never heard of 
that, you know, that's a big deal. Yeah. That's a big deal, you know. I mean, that must be a big challenge for you. And I know um, some of the companies who work here, like Gingerline, who work in, they do gastronomic experiences. Mm. And they're the same. Everything is secret. There's no real images unless you have bought a ticket and are involved and that kind of thing. But the difficulty with that is you get a really niche, lovely following who will come to everything that you do. But then also it can be difficult for new audiences to know about you because of the secrecy. So I guess it's always balancing the exclusivity of keeping something secret because that's part of the charm yeah. and the draw to what you're doing, but also making sure that you always have the possibility to have audience, a new audience as well, to find out about you. And it's important to the work that we're doing that it's secretive and that kind of thing, just because of the types of projects we work on. Yeah. Um, it lends itself to that to that world, and that's why it's so important. Yeah. Um, our first our first public show, um, the seance. We had people who came out because they thought they were seeing an actual seance. Wow. Uh, and were ghost hunting enthusiasts and that kind of thing, and they also really enjoyed the show. Yeah. Yeah. But they came in not entirely knowing what it was and whether it was real or a show or, or, or what it was. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. We had some people who came out to Curiosities thinking that they were just going to go see a sideshow. Yeah. Um, which I thought our marketing made it very clear, but... Uh, I thought so too, and obviously because I had a really good look at everything before I came and met with you as well. Because it's, again, because of the secrecy, it's difficult to make sure... Yeah. Like to get a sense for the work because I haven't spoken to anyone before that I haven't engaged in their work. So this is kind of interesting for me, but I like the idea of that secrecy. But I thought actually the marketing is quite clear and yeah. kind of gives a really good sense of what to expect. We, we try because we don't want the audience to come in unprepared um, because we deal with some heady subject matter sometimes yeah. that if you're not prepared to, to go to that place and, and deal with that, then it makes, us, makes it hard for us to engage you and immerse you. Yeah, of course. And I think that it's like um, playing a game, isn't it, in, in some respects, because everyone has to be wanting to play the game, because if someone doesn't want to play the game, it's going to be really hard to play the game. <laughs> so you, I guess you want people to come along who want... Want to engage. Who want to engage. We always encourage people to, to dress up and, mm-hmm. and come show and you know do they as well yes oh yeah curiosities we had we had this whole crew that showed up in a vintage car all in uh in pinup outfits um and they probably i think had the best time of anybody else because they came in wanting that experience Uh willing to participate in the experience and from the onset we're we're ready to go and we're game to play and that's important for us yeah because you know the one-on-one, the one-on-ones that I did involved playing Russian roulette with staple guns with an audience member and uh, uh, having them put staple guns to my neck and uh-huh. pull, the, pull the trigger and um, and that's was, a strong ethical challenge as well. well. And it's it's all about you know the show is is really about power dynamics mm-hmm. uh, in this environment and so to play a a mind game with a lone audience member alone in a bathroom. With a table and two chairs and a bunch of staple guns mm-hmm. that are all real, um, is you know if you're not if you're not willing to play, 
it makes it really hard. Yeah, of course. Um, because it's such a vulnerable experience for the actor that, you know, if you're yeah. not willing to play it, Well, I think that's, that's one of the important things, though, isn't it? Is, um, I know as an audience member, you want to feel like you're coming in on equal terms with the performers in some ways, that you're both risking the same. And it's because you're both risking the same that you feel secure to take risks, I think. And the times when I felt uncomfortable or when I felt that the power dynamic has been weighted towards potentially the performers, and maybe that's more uncomfortable and more challenging for an audience member. But I guess, you know, different people engage with it in, in really, really different ways. I mean, we also put our audience through quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, we, had a, we, have a, we had a one-on-one where an audience member was pulled into a room expecting to be seduced uh, and then gets tied up by this girl mm-hmm. and, with, and then has a bag placed over their head. Uh-huh. And then she leaves. Oh, God. And somebody <laughs> else, her husband, comes into the space. Yeah. And the power dynamic totally changes. Of course. Um, and you're sitting there with your hands tied behind your head with a bag over your head. Like, mm-hmm. that's a very, like vulnerable experience and that's what we wanted yeah no exactly um, I mean we're trying to stay away from those horrible things that happened in the 70s and 80s with audience members being forced to participate in horrible horrible, horrible things, things. I, I absolutely I ref- agree and I, I refuse to go there I have nightmares of that and actually I think when some people when you say participation in theatre go white and just look horrified and I think that's why is those things some of those things that happened in the 70s and in the 60s but they came from a very different place Place, as well I think but I think that's what scares some people I mean you and I had a long conversation earlier about the importance of consent in this is we have we are very clear that audience members have to consent to every single one of these experiences and we have this whole process of checklist of of consent when choosing an audience member for a one on one or for a small group experience we have to make sure that they're that they're game yeah. That, they're, that they're down to play and that they understand that we are not going to hurt them. Yes. That's very important yeah. for us. Uncomfortable is good. Unsafe is not good. If Absolutely. you feel unsafe, you check out of the experience. Yeah, yeah. If you're slightly uncomfortable, That's I good. like that. Yeah, me we, too. we want that from yeah. you. But if you feel unsafe, you check out. Do you have to be more mindful as well? Because I know that the context is slightly more litigious as well than here. I think audiences are less likely here to kind of take offence in that way. And we don't have to worry so much about lawsuits and things like that. We're we're talking about waivers now when you buy your ticket that you have to... I mean, that's not going to stop somebody from suing. No, of course not. But it's an extra piece of paper that says, you agreed to X, Y, and Z... um, which really, it sucks. The only it thing sucks. I've had to do that for was the zombie experience I went to because there were weapons involved. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of health and safety. Yeah. And I signed a waiver there. But as far as I know, I haven't, I can't recall signing one for anything else. But I think that is, things are going to go more and more that way just because it is about covering yourselves and yeah. insurance purposes. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, the amount of uh, space and event insurance that we pay on these some of these locations that we use are astronomical. Really? Um, because they want to make sure that we're covered. Of course. If something happens. Yeah. Um, you know, we had to get, I think it was like $2 million worth of insurance for two performances of Curiosities. Obviously, we didn't pay wow, that much, wow. but that's yeah, how much yeah, we had to be covered yeah, up to um, by, by the venue. And 
I mean, wow. I totally understand why, but that's a yeah. huge expense wow. of the show. I guess that's some of the differences, like some of the venues we have here, like this venue and lots of other venues, the venue has public liability insurance, so you're covered for that when you kind of come in. So again, there's quite a lot of differences in kind of how we operate because we're covered by like, the venue's covered and they're covered by PRS and all that kind of thing. So we don't have to worry quite so much. And for me, I work in an education environment a lot of the time, so we're covered (laughs) covered by the university who pay all of that kind of for us which is is quite nice it's, it's so nice uh, i mean outside of the, the educational uh sorry the uh, experimental theater wing at nyu there's really not anywhere that teaches that kind of immersive wow, okay. theater that I, that i know of. Yeah, yeah i could no. be totally wrong podcast <laughs> listeners do not if hold me do, to that if you know anyone who does it then let us know let us Get know please by Email by all me, means yeah. um yeah outside of the um experimental theater wing at nyu I don't really know of, you know. Um, now, there are private, like, uh, Third Rail teaches some excellent workshops. If you're in New York, definitely do one of those. Yeah. Uh, Hope Davis, who was at Sleep No More Forever, is amazing and teaches workshops all the time. If that's, if that's something that interests you, definitely take a workshop and, like, learn more about it because you, can't, you can learn the techniques. Mm-hmm. But there are only certain people who are cut out to be a I completely agree. I think it's a real... And you don't know until you have a go. And that, that's the thing. And I was going to ask you about that, actually, because we've talked quite a little bit about um, Curiosities and a couple of the other shows. And I wanted to ask you, how, can you recall anything that has gone wrong or really surprised you? Because, of course, it's exactly why it's difficult to know if you're good at doing this kind of work, because audience can behave... So astonishing ways. It's so true. And do you have any kind of stories that oh. where they either massively astonished you or did oh, something? Oh boy! Utterly abhorrent. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, just from curiosities, this, this last week we had so many things happen, um, which is the fun. I mean, I work with a core group of people that I really trust, and yeah. I trust them, you know, completely without hesitation. I mean, even doing my one-on-one. I had audience members, um, I had several audience members that, that were totally game to put a, a loaded staple gun to my to my jugular and pull the trigger because they'd had a couple of drinks. Yeah, um, of course. But I had one girl who refused, refused to play, so I had to just let her out of the room because she, she wouldn't even close her eyes because we have them close their eyes. Yeah. And she was just huddled in the corner going, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. And I'm like... I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. Trust me, I'm not going to hurt you. Uh, It's not that kind of experience. Um, So that was interesting. We had audience members uh, find their way for the second show of Curiosities. They snuck into the space. They they were supposed to be held uh, outside because we have an intro scene and speech that happens, which also kind of explains the rules of the world and that kind of thing. They stuck inside, and I was like running around to make sure all the all the haze machines were like operating properly oh right before the show. And they were just standing at the bar in the space, and I was like, "Okay, how do we get them out of here in character and not make them feel like they did something like wrong?" They did, yes, absolutely. Which was really hard, and I'm sure I made them feel like they were doing something wrong, which they, they were. They were. Uh, but I didn't want to ruin the experience for them from the outside. Well, that's the challenge, isn't it? When you set no. Well, obviously you set some boundaries because you set up a fictive world, so you create a right. set, some expectations, but in some respects you set up the possibility for anything to happen, so then you have to be prepared, I guess, for anything. 
supposedly happen. Yeah, we, was, we had some very interesting and like levels of intoxication really change things. Yeah. Um, and we try and do, you know, we try and do a good job of like, if someone seems really wasted, we're not going to let them into the show. No, and in fact, some of the shows here now, I'm going to pause this in a minute because they're making loads of noise. <laughs> some of the shows here are not allowed, it specifically says when you buy tickets that you are not allowed in if you're intoxicated or under the influence of drugs. Yes, yes. Just because then it does become, oh, it's where they stop now, it does become difficult and it does become dangerous then because like, people do behave more erratically. Oh, absolutely. And they're intoxicated um, in was, one way or another. That was very interesting for us, particularly during Alving Estate because we limited the amount of alcohol that audience members could purchase. Ah, okay. We didn't tell them that. No. <laughs> but we weren't going to serve them more. I think we capped it at three drinks. Uh, we wouldn't serve them more than three drinks at our bar space. Yeah. But people pre-games before they showed up yeah, for the show. Yeah, well, this is one of the issues. And that's why some of the tickets here now are starting to say, if you turn up having been drinking, you won't be allowed in, and, and no refund because it's, a, it's your fault. Exactly. Yeah. You've been told... Yeah. And I've been there are a few occasions when people have been turned away as well because they turn up absolutely drunk. And you're just like, wow, that's dangerous. <laughs> I find a drink is helpful to the yes, experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I take people to sleep no more, for example, I, we don't drink before. No. We get into Mandalay. Yeah. I buy everybody around right before. I'm like, one and that's it. One is one, good. One, one is just relaxes it you. It relaxes you. you it, it makes you, it kind of allows you to not feel as anxious. It feels and, disingenuous as well to be in that beautiful bar and not have and not have a, a drink. <laughs> and I mean, and the singers are always incredible. Yeah, and, and the drinks are always good. I yeah. mean, I've become an, a fan of absinthe <laughs> because of Vanderlei, um, which is you know, yeah, awesome. Um, but yeah, it's we, we've just we've had so we had an audience member lean on a three hundred year old painting, and that that became a that became a problem. Things uh, changed so much during the run of Alving Estate because of things that audience members were doing. And yeah. um, it was interesting. It was one of those cases that audience members latched on to the supporting characters mm -hmm. more than the principal characters. Okay. Um, I think I had an audience member say, who came a couple of times to the run, say there was a moment where one of our, our staff was just improving with audience member and made her uh, because the the ensemble was staff in this estate this audience member said she had never felt as connected as immersed as when this person made her wash a window wow like just yeah. this whole experience of being forced to participate in these like household tasks that mm -hmm. the staff was doing whether sweeping the floor or washing the window or whatever um, <laughs> in this in this creepy old mansion mm -hmm was really engaging for them yeah. and they enjoyed that more than well it's wonderful as well to hear that and everyone I've spoken to is the same actually things evolve and change in response to the audience as the run is going you have to yeah um, you know we did we did only two performances of Curiosities uh, and we didn't make any major changes to the show I said I refuse to make well, two, major two nights. Did, it's, yeah, yeah. Too, it's too much <laughs> but we like reassessed yeah. a lot between the performances and we decided that we needed to engage the audience more. And it's going to develop, isn't it? In it's going to develop. You're going to be doing um, more. Well, I can, I can officially announce now that we are going to be having a expanded run in a new secret location in December. Excellent. So how do people need to 
keep informed about this? Uh, follow us on Twitter. It's Death's Head PR. Uh, and on Instagram, it's Death's Head Theatrical. Lovely. Or watch out on Broadway World and Playbill and all the places where you get your normal theater news. We tend to be on there. Um, and there will be, we'll be popping up on other people's blogs and stuff, I'm sure. Okay. At some point. So let's just kind of keep an ear out on keep, the keep, social keep, media. On the social media side of things. Um, this version of Curiosities is going to be quite different. Uh-huh. But I think we learned a lot from this from this run and uh, all the feedback we got from audience members, which is vastly important to us because we're creating the work for them. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and if they're going to be engaged, they have to they have to enjoy. It's been interesting because our first major public show, the, the Seance, was born out of this conversation that I had on the train. I was doing a production of Our Town. And a couple of us from New York would, would ride the train out to New Jersey together mm-hmm. every day. And it just became this conversation of, um, I've always been fascinated by charlatans and mediums and like the mm-hmm. that kind of Victorian parlor seance yes, yes. Um, era and culture and things. Um, and I put myself through college, but not only as a performer, but as a mentalist with a nightclub. Mm-hmm. I would do three nights a week oh, wow. to, to pay my way through school. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I put that away many years ago, but it it does creep into the work. Of course, and I, um, every artist has that. They have the things that, and sometimes you don't even notice it yourself until you look back. This will feed into my next question, actually. You look back over your work and you're like, I have, I, I'm obviously really obsessed with these certain things that I didn't really realise until I started to review my kind of catalogue of work. And I guess everyone is the same. But this question them. popped up is, would a Victorian parlor seance using all the same tricks and scams, nothing high tech, nothing modern, yeah, yeah. would it still scare a modern audience? And that's what the seance was, was we recreated uh-huh. moment for moment, trick by trick, wow. a Victorian parlor seance in a Victorian home. We did it a bunch of places. Did it scare them? Oh my goodness. Yes, it did. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, you know, and it started, I, I did it before Death's Head was really a thing. I did a version of the show in, in D.C., where mm-hmm. I'm from originally. Um, and then we would pop out to historical societies, would bring us into create a version of the show based on the history of their space. We always wrap in the history of the the place that we're in. Because why not? You can't not either when you're in those those spaces there. And and that's kind of the point, is to make it seem real. And you have to. Um, And boy, that show, we were surprised. We did three performances a night for two nights, sold out. Very quickly. I mean, our audience sizes were small. I think it was like 25 or 35 people per show because we had sitters at the table and we had people sitting on in an outer ring. Oh, okay. Um, And the show was only like 45 minutes long. Would you say there were kind of two layers of participation in that then? Are the people in the inner ring kind of actively in the same? I mean, everyone was was an active participant, but the people who were the sitters at the table, there were 12 of them plus the medium, which makes 13 at the table. were were asked to participate and one person was put inside a spirit cabinet and things happened oh. and, um, they were more active participants they were asked to read things uh, yeah. but everybody uh, of course because they're in that space well when, when the dark section of the seance happened we, we lit the room with uh, three 
spare light bulbs, period light bulbs. And there was a moment where, and a lantern was on the table, there was a moment right before we got into the dark section as the medium was going around and turned off one light and turned off the second light and was walking to the third light and the third one went out on its own. And it was like this, re- and then that's when the audience was like, <sighs> because it started with, you know, the seance was going well and things yeah. were going as the medium told them it would. And then yeah. things started happening that Gun. were slightly yeah. off. Uh, there was at one point where the medium was, was talking about historical things. Um, we presented in kind of an academic way and, and a book just slid down the bookshelf and fell off the, the bookshelf mm-hmm. and really startled audience because it was a very clear like a hand was pushing it across i love that i love the fact that techniques from you know over 100 years ago yeah. still scary are still really effective way, to honestly audience. way more scary I, I went to a high-tech seance show recently that was like pneumatics and hydraulics and all this all this stuff yeah. and i was like i don't know it was scary it was not as scary no. when everything's so clear I like lo-fi. And I, lo-fi. I'm, I'm kind of old-fashioned in that way. I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, so that was, it was so it. scary. And people really loved it. And we talked about the historical impact mm-hmm. of that mediumship yeah, yeah, era. Yeah. And actually, we had a, a, someone from the New York Times come to the show, and we didn't know that they were coming. Oh, wow. And we ended up in this beautiful article about regilding the Gilded Age yes, uh, yes, of, I saw of that. New York. Uh, which was it was so. I mean, things like that nice. are perfect as well. This leads me to the final thing I was going yeah. to ask you about. Um, I have quite a lot of anxiety as an academic and as a practitioner about the future legacy of this work, and I, I ask myself, in even in thirty years' time. Is there going to be much documentation of this? Is there going to be much left behind? Because, of course, it is about the experience, and that's why I love it. But as an academic as well, I'm frightened for its legacy because of things like secrecy and because, um, I, I know, I'm the same. I'm making a piece of work, and I can't think of absolutely everything. And It's always afterwards I would oh, I wish I'd filmed that. I wish I took a picture of that, and I haven't. And that scares me for the future of how it's remembered and its contribution to culture in the long term. And I wondered what you thought about that, because, of course, secrecy is such a big thing about the work that you do. And, and, and it's hard, because I like I like seeing immersive work. I can't see everything. I like to, I like to research. I like to stay updated on what's playing around me. Yeah. But, like, outside of a couple of commercials, there's nothing on Sleep No More, Ben Chappelle, Grand nope. Paradise. There's, nope. there's nothing. 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 Um, which is obviously, it's almost, an, it's impossible properly capture yeah. unless you're going to do some kind of experience where you strap a GoPro to somebody's head yes. and send them through the show. Absolutely. But and that, even then it's not going to be it, it's, is That's it? not going to be it. Because uh, you can't see all the one ones. You but can't see everything. there might be a strange black hole in 20 years' time when there's no record of any of these things left behind. It's, it's hard. It makes um, me anxious. <laughs> and, I don't know what the answer and, is. And, I don't and, know how to and fix it, but it And rightfully so, you know, especially because there's so little of it going on in the U.S., yeah. um, especially of the small things. Yes. Um, and the small immersive theater productions tend to be the best yes, and tend absolutely. to be really um, involved. And that's, yeah, it's it's a constant struggle. We, we try and take some, some pictures and stuff, but it's really hard because all the good ones staged yes I'm exactly the same I had to do in the end I've been trying to do my work I've been making my work for three years and in the end I had to stage a specific version of it that we literally just documented 
There was no audience, no nothing there. We just did it to get some images. And, and that's so and that's so hard, and especially when yeah. you know. And it's awful. When I know people in the, in the shows and whatnot, and like I'll see, for example, um, Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton. Uh, they occasionally have celebrity cameos yeah. in Sleeping Dog. Yeah. Uh, he popped in for a night and played the, the doctor. I think he only just did the one-on-one because it's a heavy gesture. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a great picture of him sitting in the chair. Well, the problem is all the people around him in masks are people that I know who work at the McKittrick. So yeah, they obviously yeah. staged that they photo. Staged and photo. Obviously, exactly. like, the regular audience members aren't going to know that. No. Like, these photos are so beautiful. I know. And it's, you know, that iconic image with the lamps and all the people yes, standing around. Yeah. Obviously, they... It's staged. They, they but staged. they have to be. They have to be. You can't... Also, we, we have the pressure here because, of course, we're always applying for funding. Yeah. So you, they, you need a portfolio. They need to see your work. And, and so... It's also so distracting. Could you imagine going to an immersive show where you have people walking around with big, like, professional cameras, cameras trying to take production stills? That's crazy. Yeah. That's so difficult. So, I mean, I don't know the answer, and I'm trying out a few different things, and none of them quite capture it. And I don't think anything will, but I do worry... I mean, you can't. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about live theater. That's what I love about, you know, even if you have a a nine camera pro shot version of a Broadway show, it's not not the same. Never. And it can't be. And that's what makes it so beautiful. But also, it's one of the things that means things slip out of their cultural legacy and they lose out on their cultural legacy. And I don't know what the answer is. And I'm hoping that a few of us academics can get together and at least think about but isn't, ways isn't, to curate isn't, it. isn't that what's special about yeah, it, though? Yeah, it is. It is, is that if you missed it, you missed it. I know. Um, and, un- and unfortunately, some of these shows are going to fade into obscurity. And they are. No one's ever going to know that they happened, which is... Apart from the, you know, the handful of people that If it's were there. good, if people remember it. Yeah, like, that's That's the thing. Well, um, it becomes myth, then, and a lot of this... and um. All the stuff that remained from the 60s and 70s is the kind of things I'm interested in, from the fluxes and the happenings, and all, especially the happenings. The iconic ones are ones that had in a few images that le- are left behind, but they're the ones that people talked about and got documented through discussion and in that way. And then they become kind of mythology, and maybe that's what will happen. Maybe we need to make sure that we have mythology. There's some really interesting, and I love the really cool, intimate things that are happening in New York. There's a piece called the Illuminati Ball that's being produced by the same uh, company that did Speakeasy Dollhouse, which is now back in Brooklyn. It's 35 audience members. Tickets are $450, but you get in a private limo, and they take you an hour and a half out of the city to a mansion in Pennsylvania countryside on a lake, and you participate in an Illuminati ball that's an exact mirror of the Rothschild Illuminati ball that there yeah, are a couple yeah, of yeah, images yeah. of with yeah, a couple yeah. of masks. Yeah. It's like a full evening of things, but like, imagine how many people get to see that and they can afford those tickets. Well, and that's they, the thing. And they the don't happen every night. It's, from... it's like once or twice a month. Yeah. Um, and... You know, there's almost no images or anything from no. the show. Well, I couldn't go because I couldn't afford to pay yeah, that I mean, kind of ticket. Neither. I would love to go. Yeah. If, you're, if you're listening to this, <laughs> uh, Cynthia, uh, please uh, tweet at Deathhead and uh, send me uh, a beautiful ticket to your Illuminati ball. I'll give you a ticket to Curiosities. How about that? Exactly. Um, that would be amazing. <laughs> um, I mean, love Speakeasy Dollhouse. I haven't seen it since it moved. Um, 
but like that's a really there's some really cool pieces. Um, I, I the nice thing about Grand Paradise it's it's not set in the 20s, 30s, or 40s. It's yeah, set which in the a 70s. lot of things are, aren't they? They kind of sit within that particular period. It, it works period. so well for yeah, the style. Exactly. I mean, um, Alving Estate was set in the 50s. Curiosities yeah. is 1936. Our seance was like late Victorian. Late late Victorian, um, which was you know interesting and. I really want to bring that show back in some capacity, in a bigger capacity. I just don't know how. Well, you should definitely bring something to the UK. I, I think love, audiences I here would, would go wild because we don't really have that kind of that kind of immersive work I would here. Love, so. I would love to do that. Um, if, if you know ways if, that I can if, get if money in space. If any of the producers uh, from BAC are listening, I know some of you. Um, get in touch please please <laughs> please um it would be ideal for here as well exactly would, the kind this, of thing this that would is work this so is a beautiful here. space uh and i could bring you all something really creepy and fun and exactly. dark and intense um you know one of our joke taglines that we always say in our in our, in our meeting is um death's head is like camping or the circus it's intense <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we always either start or end our production meetings with that horrible joke. That is perfect. Uh, well, I think that's going to be a perfect place for us to finish. Um, you, you're only here in the UK for a very short period yes. of time, so thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. For giving me part of that very short time. Um, I'm actually running off to Portsmouth now to see an immersive event this evening. So. Um, I'm seeing LaFont's Games Afoot tonight, yeah, which yeah. is very exciting. I had to see something immersive while I was in town. I have to tweet about it because I've oh, been to the other experience. Yeah, so. no, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very excited. I'm excited to see how it's different. And I learned about LaFont by listening to the podcast. Yes. Uh, and now I'm, I'm obsessed with everything of theirs. Uh, well, James and Ollie seem to be crazy busy. They've done, Leon Fonts are doing mad amounts of shows which at the is moment great. which is amazing so um you'll be able to catch them in all kinds of different ways um thank you very much have thank a safe ju- have, have a lovely time with your family because i know you're here visiting family yes. and um have a very safe journey back when you do thank head you back so over much the pond. <laughs> and and thank you all for for listening to yes. to my very different accent that you're <laughs> i'm sure used to hearing on this podcast it's probably a very nice change from from my voice but thank you very much thank you thank you Thanks to all you folks listening. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. As usual, it would be really lovely to hear from you. Tweet me, email or Facebook. All your comments and feedback are most welcome. I would love to hear your thoughts. And actually, recently I've been wondering who it is that's listening and where they're listening from. I have got lots and lots of stats, but they're really impersonal and I would love to hear from you. So do get in touch and tell me who you are and where you're listening, just because I want to know really. And of course, share, share, share. The more the merrier to any immersiveites, immersiveonians, or people you know who just might have a passing interest in immersive performance. Share, share, share. I'll be very, very grateful. Thank you very much. So until next month, bye.